From 11FS, I'm Sam Mall, and this is Connection Interrupted. Connection Interrupted is a weekly show focusing on individuals across all walks of life whose plans and journeys were interrupted, disconnected, or rerouted. These are their stories told in their words of the obstacles they faced, the challenges they overcame, and the role technology played both as an instigator and as an instrument for positive growth and change in their lives. Every now and then you meet someone you simply click with. It's as if you've known them your whole life and you've been close friends forever. The conversation is just comfortable. It, it flows naturally. This describes my conversation with Rob Froine, one of the co-founders of the highly successful fintech company Cabbage. Rob is easy to talk to. He's brilliant, he's funny, and he is, in his own words, passionately curious about everything. You'll quickly come to that conclusion when you listen to this episode. Together, Rob and I go down the rabbit hole on every topic imaginable. If you listen closely, though, Rob will provide you with multiple hidden gems on what it takes to start a successful company, what it takes to truly embrace and prioritize company culture, This episode is a masterclass in leadership. It's a unicorn MBA wrapped around an entertaining and honest 45-minute chat. This is the Cabbage Story. Do you have a cone of silence in this office? Because you got freaking everything else. You got Galaga up front. Yeah. You got um, Sopranos pinball. We do. Ping pong and pool. Billiards. Yeah, very billiards. Impressive. Oh, we're going yeah. very UK-ish on me. Well, All right. uh, we're, we're, we're classy on this All right. podcast. All right. um, yeah, the food. We have food. We have uh, beer on tap. We've got, what else we have? Uh, uh, we have these awesome, awesome massage chairs on 10 that you have to check out. This is why you guys are ranked so high <laughs> on your uh, 100 <laughs> so, best companies or something like that. Oh, well, okay. For top, top companies. Yeah. It's not because, look, I somebody actually came in. Uh, this was now a couple of years ago. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, you have that ping pong and pool. And he goes, you have to, you know, you got to do that these days for the young people. Right. And, <laughs> young people. and I was like, <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing, I was like, well, that's not really the reason we did that. You, you know, you build a culture and then certain things sort of emanate from that culture. And, you know, when you build a culture where people actually like one another and they want to talk with one another and they care about one another, they sometimes want to hang out and do other stuff than work. Um, and so you end up having some other things around the office because people want to want to get together and talk. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. This is actually on your bio on the Uh-oh. Cabbage site. Uh-oh. All right. Um, I, no, I'm going to say that. I'm going to read you. This is what's on your bio. So your right, PR we'll team put it together. Whether I have a resume issue now. As Cabbage expands and continues to support more small businesses, that's how you know his marketing team wrote it. Rob ensures the company maintains great conviction to its vision, as well as a unique culture and considerable laughter quotient. Now, I like that last part. Laughter quotient. I'm thinking yes. you gave that la- that last part. No, you know what? You're going to interview her soon, Catherine Petralia. Why am I interviewing you? I, there's that? really no reason. I, You know what? I, I'm also very, very humble. It's nothing. None, none of our success is attributable to, to me um, because I'm humble and it's also true. No, um, actually, I think both of us have a have a pretty strong sense of humor. Um, and it's not about being around here and laughing all day. It's, it's about when you're in an atmosphere where you feel comfortable. 
you feel like you can be yourself. You say, sometimes you say things that are funny. If you're in an atmosphere where you don't feel comfortable and you can't be yourself, there's less laughter yeah. because there's less things to laugh about. Uh, and, and so I think laughter is a, uh, you know, is a good measure for whether you've created a, an authentic culture. So I, I haven't come up with a name for this yet. So this is a connection interrupted interview. So I'm supposed to be talking about your life story, which oh, we're not wow. going to do. Don't worry. We'll, we'll weave it in. <laughs> don't, don't, do not want to do not want to bore people. But no, but go ahead. I want to do something. And like I said, I got several interviews with several founders of, yes. of narwhals and unicorns and just really cool companies, right? That have done well in yes. this space. Okay. And it's more, you know, there's that podcast of how I built this. Yeah. It's just a great series, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and NPR does a bunch that are really good. You know, I, we had talked about like the narwhal whisper or the unicorn whisper. We're going to come up with a clever name right. for what this special edition is. But what I want to do is talk to you about how do you build what you have, right? Right. The mistakes you made, what you did well. And you already hit on one, right? Or you've already hit on two since we've been here. One is the culture. Yep. So I came from, I come from a backing, banking background. Okay. I come from a consulting background. Yep. I'm trying to think what I can say politely. Um, I've been on that <laughs> so in other side. Words, you, 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 you've not, it, it wasn't a culture first background. No, 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 <laughs> okay. no, no, no. Gotcha. So what do you mean by culture first? Uh, well, it, you know, I think it, I think it means that we, we try to hire people. It's funny, you, you, you interview a lot of people over time and you interview people that, you know, are clearly culture fits. And then you interview people that, you know, you can tell probably this is not the right environment for them. But everybody says they'd like to be in this culture. They go, that's what I'm trying to get out of. I'm trying to get out of this. You know, I'm in a situation. And it's really important when you're interviewing people that you don't confuse that with thinking that means the person has the culture you need. Just because they're in a culture that they're not happy with and they believe um, they want to be part of a different culture doesn't mean they reflect that culture. Um, the first thing we try to do when we interview people is, you know, obviously we, we take them through all the hurdles of can you actually do the job? But the final interview is really a panel interview. And Catherine and I have conducted most of them over the, you know, there's fewer because I travel all the time that I'm participating in, but I still do a lot of them. So the large, overwhelming majority of people here I interviewed at one point or another uh, during the process. And um, so first you clear the hurdles. I don't know whether you can do your job. I have no idea whether you can do your job. That's other people figure that out. Um, I, I help to figure out whether this is the right, right place for you and, and vice versa. And the way you do that is fill, figure, find people who are self-aware. They know what they're good at. They know what they suck at. They um, genuinely care about other people. Um, they're willing to raise a hand when they need help. And they're willing to help people who raise a hand. Uh, and they're also... Um, I say that I don't want people who tolerate other people because I think if you tolerate other people because they're different than you, you put up with something you hate. I want people who embrace culture, right? Embrace the differences between them and other people. And then if you have all those things together, you have an atmosphere where people, again, can be themselves because they're not going to be vilified for being themselves. And then you end up with people who enjoy being in this atmosphere. And guess what? They laugh and they smile and they take an interest in your personal life. And if you have something challenging or even amazing health-wise that happens, you're like, you have a baby, we end up sending a shitload of food, you know, and, you know, celebrate that. You know, it's just a culture of, of really building a family because, uh, look, we've all been in the culture that you described that you were in previously, and it's not what you want to wake up and go and do every day. And that's, you know, that's unfortunate. And life is way too short. Okay, for anybody who's really young or anybody who's like me, right? I'm 51 and I just I'm made the leap. I'm about to turn 50. Okay. I look better than you. Um, 
<laughs> I hate the, it. But that's not, this is a radio interview. People oh, cannot take see pictures. me to, yeah, yeah. to actually um, agree can, with you, which they would. I'm going to Photoshop. hundred times. Yeah, that's what Photoshop's for. <laughs> um, but I, I don't care what stage of life you're in. I'm actually going to write a blog post about this. Because at 50, mid-50, almost 51 is when I made the decision to do a startup. Because 11FS is a consultancy, yep. but we call it Challenger Consulting Group. So I left long-term corporate life working for global firms to go and do this. And I keep telling everybody, I wish I would have done it 10 years ago. You know, um, it's one of those decisions to make the leap because it does. It's it's when you thoroughly enjoy and invested something, you want to do it. I like, though, what you talked about on the interview process, because I am going to in my great research. I just went and looked up other interviews and are ripping everything off from them because that's how I, I roll everybody. But one thing our one of our founders says, David Breyer, about hiring, putting a team together, because we're in like the early stages of building yep. out a team. And he got this advice from someone else was, it's better to have a hole on a team than an asshole, which I think Love we need that. to put I've on the wall. i heard that, yeah. yeah. Well, you're welcome. There you go. That one Thank can you. go out the entrance. Thank you. Um, After quotient, you can have that. But it's, a, but it's very true, right? I mean, yep. it's, it's amazing. I don't care how smart someone is, how disruptive that can be. And especially when you're trying to do something like like you've done, you, you you don't want to lose talent, other talent, because of asshole talent. Look, and and you know, I think the other thing is is we and we've made this mistake. If you ask me the, the mistakes that we've made along, um, you know, the way, I'd say we became desperate, right? So we there was a hole, and the hole was there for a long time, and so eventually, at some point, you're like, we got to fill that damn hole, and we would fill it, and we'd fill it with the wrong person. Yeah. That wasn't a culture fit. That didn't work. But we hadn't found somebody who had. Um, and every single time it turned out to be the worst decision we could possibly make. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with you more. Yeah, I, I, I what, what love one, that quote. What one did you get on your coffee cup? Um, it says, uh, this coffee cup I says, it's a cabbage um, branded coffee cup. It says, create holy shit moments. I'm falling in love with the cabbage office <laughs> right <laughs> now. Shit seems to be a theme uh, around this office. Uh, it is for us too. Um all, all over and over again. Um, here's another quote that you had. So this, I think this was, I don't know where this interview came, maybe lend it last year. Um, but it was a really good interview, by the way. Um, you said at the time we have about 275 people. Is that still about accurate? No, we have uh, over 400 now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's good. Yeah. Um, uh, but what you said is what you and Catherine look for in your interview process is you said, we have a fit interview during which I ask if you had one word to put on your tombstone, you said that you would put curiosity Yes, because we're a curious company. Yeah. So expand. What do you mean? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I I believe and it's funny. It's and I heard this after the fact that we use this word. The um, and I'm not, by the way, comparing myself in any way. I I, Einstein um, always said that he wasn't all that smart. He was just passionately curious. Right. So if you're curious about things, you're looking for, you know, you're, you're always asking. So when you're you'd be amazed. What's the one question when you're five years old, what's the most common, um, what's the word that starts the, the, the most common question as for every a, kid uh, out there? As a father of four. Why? 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 And guess what? When you hit, um, I think it's when you hit uh, somewhere around 11th grade, that goes down to its lowest point ever. It goes down. You go from this point of unbelievable curiosity. By the way, it coincides with going to school. Right? Yeah, I was going to say that you're, you're education told, system, Louis, we have it, right? You're Beats told, it out of you. And, and by the way, if you're in the middle of, of answering a question, you know, and you're looking up at the ceiling, you know, the teacher's like, keep your eyes on your paper, right? We, when we look up, we're, we're, we're dreaming 
when we're looking down, we're narrowly focusing. And, and so being curious is so incredibly important because it makes you, forces you to ask questions why things are there. And when you ask why things are there, you discover challenges and problems and opportunities. And so um, I think curiosity is, is the most important trait um, that somebody can have. And, and it's something that I really admire in people. And that's why I would like it to be on my tombstone because the word you want on your, the one word you want in your tombstone is to be, is should be aspirational, right? And so I, and, and by the way, it should be something you don't bestow upon yourself. It should be something others yeah. bestow upon you. I told my 12 year old son that because he always wants to give himself his own nickname. And I'm like, you don't get to do that. Yeah. Unless you're president, oh, you don't get to give yourself. Sorry, that was me slipping that. In. But you don't get to do that. <laughs> All right. So now I don't know if I'm pissing anybody off by saying. Yeah, who cares? But the thing that drives me, I have a huge pet peeve about LinkedIn. When somebody calls Just one. <laughs> oh my! I, well, my pet peeve is when somebody in, on LinkedIn calls themselves a visionary, or a guru, or a uh, yeah. Any of okay, I'm with I, you. Like. You can't call yourself a visionary. Like, did Steve Jobs walk around going, yeah, I'm a visionary? No. You know, that's like the greatest honor ever bestowed upon anybody in history is for them to be called a visionary by a lot of people. You don't get to call yourself a visionary. I am so happy, though, that you use the term passionately curious. And here's why. I actually had it written in my notes because there's a book that talks about this. It's about how to educate and, and, and help um, make innovative kids. So it's not about education and everything else. But that's what they talk about is is that concept of passionately curious. And I thought, oh my God, that I embrace that so much. Yeah. Your whole company, Cabbage, is built on is, this is me being a good interview. Oh, well, see you. this story thank thread you. coming? Thank you. But yeah, your whole every company time he says that I got I owe him like ten bucks. Yeah, but your whole company is built on that because all right, correct me if this is a true story or not. All right. But my understanding is you were doing uh, a like a brainstorming exercise. Is this true? And like that's what that idea? idea? Yeah. 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 That's exactly but, right. With, without the intent of coming up with a new idea no. for a company. All right. Walk no. us, walk us through that moment. No. I, I was, I was, uh, I used to, so I've been, I've done like everything, every job you can imagine. You have, by the way. I've done like every, like I, you know, I, when I was in college, my buddy and I started a trash hauling business. I drew blood at a hospital. I mean, I've done every little, any way I could earn a buck. You've you know, found, when you've, I was a kid, you have I did. founded other companies in other yeah. spaces, and you do have a law degree from Villanova. Yeah, I, so. I, I did that. So yeah. I, you know, because I was afraid that one day I wouldn't be able to pay the bills. Um, so I was, I was yeah. doing this brainstorming, and, and basically, um, one of the things I used to do is I used to help companies generate new ideas, and uh, and I had a bunch of ways they could come up with these ideas. You know, a bunch of exercises, and, and one of them is I know this sounds weird, but one of them is you say. What if one company in one space buys a company in an entirely different space? What would they do with it, right? Because it, it forces you to sort of juxtapose concepts and it helps you think about things out of the box. And, and so I thought of what if eBay bought a credit company? By the way, they hadn't bought Bill Me Later at that point. Um, what would they do with it? Because this was 07. And I said, oh, they'd fund small businesses that sell off of eBay. And I was like, well, shit, that's a good idea. And so that was how I came up with uh, came up with that concept. But I did it specifically the day before the brainstorm in order to give an example to the people in the brainstorm of how this works. And I had just happened to come up with the idea for cabbage. But you know, uh, it's it's 
one of those things. And I've done that with other, you know, that's the way it's happened in, in other ways as well. You know, and that's not unique. I, and I've given this in some of the, because you do talks um, and, and, and I give a lot of talks um, to inspire people and everything else, right? I get paid to do that. But one of the stories I love, do you know the, the back story of Redbox? No, I did. Now I don't remember it, but uh, I did yes, This one's one. really good because the, one of the guys from that, he went to, I think, BBVA for a while. Now he's at Visa. So he's in our space. He was at Cap One for a wow. while too. So McDonald's, the fast food company, got a group of consultants like you, hmm. put them in a room and said, come up with a new product line for us. That was the, that was the ask. And so they sat down and it was hilarious because what they did it was- wasn't McRibs? No, which they, they need to keep on the freaking menu. But they, um, <laughs> yeah, it was not McRib. We're, we're, la we're launching McLending very, yeah. very soon. Oh, a, a nice uh, crossover <laughs> for uh, McDonald's. But what these guys did was they sat in a room and they, they basically said, what are the strengths? What, what does McDonald's do really well? Yeah. And what they narrowed it down to was real estate, which is hilarious, but it's true, right? Yeah. McDonald's is actually a real estate company. They know, they know foot traffic. They, they understand that dynamic. So what they came up with the idea of, and this was, I don't know, 2002 or something like that. When but it was- still um, got videos? Yeah. Well, they literally, well, what they said was, let's put a, um, uh, the, um, a vending machine, but with milk and basically what they do in Japan now, right? But let's put basic items that you need and put it right outside the train station in DC. And so people, instead of going to a grocery store, they get off the train, they buy their milk, their bread, their, what, their staples and take them home. Big launch, invested the money, put it out there, did a big press release, and an absolute bomb. Did not work <laughs> whatsoever. Yep. But damn, if people didn't rent DVDs and videos, right, out of one of these red machines that yep. they had, yep. Redbox. McDonald's wow. is the ones that were behind Redbox. And the right. Mark, and I can't remember his last name, I'll put it in the show notes, went on to head up the innovation lab at Capital One. Then I believe he went to BBA, and now he's at Visa. Wow. That's great. How's that for a, a start? That's pretty well. Look, yeah, um, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, no, there's, uh, without a doubt, when you put kind of strange um, bedfellows together, you can come up with some great ideas. Oh, that's a good quote. I like that. <laughs> strange. Maybe that's the title of this uh, episode, Strange Bedfellows. We'll just make people wonder what I that means. I don't know if I was using that terminology right, but I went for yeah, it well, anyway. I like it. You, you, here's the other thing about you I love. You've actually, you've authored books. You're, you're on Amazon. If I look you up, but here's the funny part. It's the idiot's guide to trademarking, the idiot's guide to copyrights. Is that like some and sort also of patents and patent? The idiot's guide to patents. All three of them. So is there a, like a Freudian message, message or, or something in there? <laughs> idiot's guide. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, those who can't um, or those yeah. who are. Um, you know, it's funny. It, it, it came from an idea. I was, you know, That's one of the shocking. things I did was I was an intellectual property guy, uh, attorney, and uh, I talked to a friend, and his friend. I'll, I'll make this story very, very brief. Uh, his friend told me the story how his brother-in-law um, ended up writing The Idiot's Guide to Understanding Iraq. And the way he did that was a buddy of his went to him and said, hey, I'm supposed to wow. write- Wow. By yeah. the way, most the only thing more complicated than that would be Afghanistan. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, this was back in, you know, this is a 102. Wow. And okay. so um, he, he basically said- um, somebody came to him and said, look, I got this contract to write this book. Could you help me write this book on Iraq? And this guy didn't know anything about Iraq. So within six months, he had not only written the book, published it, but he was on a, um, a show with Colin Powell talking about Good Iraq. Lord. And I, and I was like, wow, that's a great story. So I went up and I looked, I said, has anybody ever written an idiot's guide or the dummy's guide, um, to intellectual property? And nobody had. And so I had my buddy introduce me to his brother-in-law who introduced me to the publisher. And I said, hey, I pitched him on the book. 
they said, oh, sounds like a great idea. Write up a chapter, what it might look like. And I wrote up a chapter and then they disappeared for like six months. And, they, and then they came back to me. They said, hey, um, we're not interested in one book, but we are interested in three books um, on these three topics. Good and I was success like, there. All right. Yeah. And so literally wrote three books with one of my business partners over a six month. We had to write a half a book a month for six months. Um, and these are not long books. They're like 180 pages. So we divvied it up and we did it. Um, and, uh, and it was fun and, you know, and it was good because, um, pretty much I think three people bought them. So, uh, no, 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 no. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm here to kiss your ass a little bit. So you're listed as an inventor on seven U S patents. So you're already cool if for like a group of four people, but, but you have also been listed four times as one of the top 300 intellectual property strategists globally by Intellectual Asset Magazine. So there's five more people and I didn't that think you're really cool. That. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, it used, to be, it used to be 200. So what they did with that thing was, you know, it's a legitimate like Intellectual Asset Magazine and it used to be the top 250. Um, and then they would come to you after they selected you and said, hey, would you like to pay for a better listing and maybe like a picture and stuff? And I was always like, no, yeah. I never did any of that. Um, and then I think they were trying to increase revenue. So they took it from 250 to 300. <laughs> so, um, yeah. um, but I never paid. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that. Out, uh, outside of Forbes top 100. List, oh, that's, there you go. All the others suck. All I hate other, lists. All yeah. the oh fintech God, influencers. and unbelievable. I, now everybody's just like ticked at me for saying it. But still, I just get. I, I, like, I couldn't agree with you more. I am so sick but of But I lists. did put it on my LinkedIn profile, which makes me kind of lame. Well, I used to. Um, I had every, every time I'd make a list, I put it on there. Yeah. And now if you read it, it says, I'm on a bunch of lists. Who gives a shit? Um, literally, uh, you know, right. I'm tired so, of it. Totally fair point. You will see my LinkedIn profile awesome. change later today. I have By the way, that's been in there for like years. <laughs> so now I need to take it off. I do list a lot of the Cabbage Awards. But I'm, you should. I'm proud of, I'm proud of Cabbage. That's like obviously. your kids, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what we do. Oh, as, no, as, I as never here. talk about them. No, I, <laughs> my kids are awesome. In fact, I'm going to see my son who's doing a semester abroad in London uh, later this week. Oh, so wait a minute. So you had us, we're, we're going to talk about Cabbage. All the listeners are like, oh my God, you two talk about Cabbage. We're getting there. So, but you have, is that the same son that went to school in San Francisco and you bought a place out there? No, no, no. He's, uh, he is a- Because uh, you did do that. What's that? You, you, you did, you did spend some time in San Francisco. You I did. Well, I rented a place this past summer. Uh, my son did an internship for the summer at Visa and it was great. He was uh, between his sophomore and junior year. Uh, and so it was, and my daughter was graduating from high school. She graduated last year. Uh, and so I said to my wife, I said, you know, this is like a chance. Why don't we spend a month in San Francisco? And so we can have the family together, yeah. you know, for a month, um, at least this summer. And so we went and rented a place for a month. I've, we have an office out there. So I worked out of that office. Uh, and it was great because we were together and it was, uh, and it was really a special time. Really special time. So when you do London, we're going to have you come to the 11FS office and, right. and do this yet again. They'll be much calmer and have cool accents. Yeah, yeah And yeah. you'll, you know, you'll be like, where's Sam? I can do my fake accent. <laughs> where's the good part? All right, let's 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 talk about cabbage. All right, sure. Finally, we're only, you know, 25 minutes into the interview. So, but I want to come back to back in 2008 when you were doing this whole idea, right? You mm -hmm. were doing the, the, the brainstorming session and you talked about, you know, if a company bought another company, wherever they go. So my understanding is you, you really took a look at eBay at the yep. time and said, look, there's all this data yep. sitting out there and no one's doing anything with it. I think, that, is that a fair assessment? There was tons of data on eBay. There was also, um, you know, the fact that people were starting to launch public APIs. Yeah. So eBay provided an API, which was typically used um, by 
companies that wanted to help eBay sellers ship products or do their taxes or things like that. But nobody was ever thinking about utilizing that data in connection with offering credit. So think about what you just said. That was in 2008. Yep. So we've got open banking on, and we're hearing up PSD2 and everything else in Europe. This idea of banks sit on a mountain of consumer data and they have APIs. And yet, what are they doing with it? Mm. Cabbage 2.0? Cabbage, <laughs> no. Look, What's I, coming? I, no, no, absolutely. I, I, uh, Look, I'm a big fan. I, I actually believe that open data is the other side of the privacy coin. So on one side, um, you know, banks and others that hold data need to be stewards of that data, right, to make sure that's, that it's protected. At the same time, um, you, as the, you know, at least co-creator of that data, if not the sole creator of that data, should have an absolute right to be able to use it for whatever purpose you want to use it for. It doesn't mean that eBay can't use its own data or that, Wells Fargo or Chase can't use its own data. It's that you also are an owner of that data and you should be able to utilize it if that's for purposes of getting a mortgage or if it's for purposes of doing your taxes or just because you want it, you should be able to grab that data and they should not do anything that should make it difficult for you to do that. In this day and age, it's very easy. But the challenge that you know we see, and, and I think PSD2 is great, but what you're having in the US a lot of times, you're having banks saying under the cloak of security, we can't give you ready yeah, access yeah, to your yeah. data because it might mean that somebody steals it. Well, guess what? Getting easy access to your data actually allows you to see your data and know if somebody's you know, compromised your data. It's, it's actually just the opposite. So you've actually said in an interview, again, I, I did oh, research. Shit. Damn. I know. You said this. I love this. Cabbage is to fintech what Amazon is to e-commerce. So one, thank you for not saying the Uber of e-commerce because I would you. have so much By fun way, with that right that now. How long ago before they increased fivefold? Not that they weren't a big <laughs> company when I said it. So so expound on that a little bit. So what Amazon is to e-commerce, that's what Cabbage is to fintech. You know, let me, and, and by the way, I don't know when I exactly I said that or, or what my specific thing 2016, was. by the way, um, August, <laughs> August, by the way. 2016. Yeah, I'm pretty oh, good. Yeah. I actually didn't make sure. There you go. Well, so here's, here's the way I, I think about um, us. And I think about us, I think every company is, it, we, we've had people who've, who've come to us and said, wait, you're a completely different company than you were when we met you like three years ago, five years ago, one year ago. And I'm like, thank you very much. It's like the highest compliment you can ever give me. Uh, and it's because I do believe that a company has to go through multiple iterations before it figures out who it is. One thing I admire so much about Jeff Bezos is it's not like he sat there in 1998 and he said, we're gonna launch AWS in 10 years and by 20 years from now, it's gonna be a $10 billion company, whatever, you know, whatever the size it is right now. It's just that he made decisions that put himself in a position to make other decisions in the future. And I think one of the, one of the things I admire most about Amazon is that, you know, that ability to evolve the company into something that most people couldn't imagine 20 years ago. But guess what, he probably could. So I think about, you know, what's Cabbage's Amazon moment? What's our AWS? And so, you know, we work with a lot of small businesses and the direction that we're heading is we want to be the financial nerve center for small businesses. We want to be, we want to allow the, I always say, we want to allow chefs to cook, right? If you're a great chef and you opened up a restaurant, you didn't open it up so you could worry about the books and financing and, and your bank deposits and things like that. You opened it up because you wanted to cook and create. And so we want you to have the opportunity to do that. So, you know, we're 
really putting ourselves in a position to do that. And I think much in the way that Amazon has put itself in a position to be everything to a, to a consumer now, we really want to be everything to a small, we want to be more to a small business. And that doesn't mean, you know, tomorrow we vomit up 12 different services. That means we go through a natural evolution where people, you know, realize that we can be a bigger and better and more important part of their life along the way. And so that's the way I think about us in relation to a company like Amazon. So you have a quote that supports this. I am so glad that you stayed on point and not drifted <laughs> off your message over the years. But you, you, you said you always have to plan for the company to fundamentally change. You got to plan to become obsolete and know where those points are. One, one question I have on that, because I'm in the, you know, with 11FS, we're in that massive early growth stage, right? Where it's yeah. just chaos in a good way. Yeah. Right. But yeah. how do you take time to reflect because you have to, do you not? During that chaos, how do you, this, this is a back to how you build it. How do you do that? Do you have people whose jobs it is to whisper in your ear, remember thou art mortal and all that crap? Or I think, you know, I think it's like anything else. It's a combination of things. One is we immerse ourselves in all the information that's out there. And we, you know, we spend a lot of time with small businesses. We spend a lot of time in the financial, you know, tech industry and the financial industry, services industry. You know, I think we also, you, you get a little lucky along the way. You make a lot of decisions along the way where, you know, and I'll give you one example. So we were hit at a moment with, you know, a bunch of potential investors who said, hey, we see, you know, that there's this drop off where you ask people to connect data to their cabbage profile. Um, and if you would just give them a manual option, uh, then you'll capture 100% of the customers that are coming in at the top of your funnel. And we said, no, if you want a loan from Cabbage, you better give us access to data. And we didn't have a really good reason for saying that other than we felt like we we're a digital company and that's the way we should be. It was such an important and lucky decision we made because, you know, now as I think back of it, if you had a hundred customers and you said you have a manual or an electronic option, 85 of them would choose the manual option and 15 would choose the electronic option. If you say to the same 100 customers, the only way you can get a loan from Cabbage is give us digital access, 85 or 90 give you digital access and 10 go away, but you have connectivity to 100% of your customers. And when you have connectivity to 100% of your customers, it puts you in a position of seeing data that you wouldn't otherwise see. And so we've we fundamentally changed the relationship and, and it's very much also a part of you know, the, the quote that is attributed to, to Steve Jobs a lot, which really should be attributed to Henry Ford, which if you asked um, a bunch of people in the 1880s what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? So sometimes you just have to have a gut feel for where the market is going. Uh, and you, you know, you gotta push in that direction, but constant ev evolution. I also think that every company that succeeds, succeeds dies six or seven times along the way. Um, and so you've got to be in a, you know, not only does the company have to have a great idea and, you know, but you have to have people who are able to identify the change and willing to make the hard decisions along the way. I really do like that quote. It's really, I think it is really hard for folks to kill products, to kill products and projects, right? I mean, again, my clients have been for the longest time and I've been part of banks. The idea of killing off something that you've funded and have put two years into is which you knew about six months in that you should kill that project, yep, but you yep. had to fight to get the resources and yep. allocated and get in the pipeline. That's hard to do. And by the way, sometimes it's done for the wrong reasons, sometimes for the right reasons. So there's a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Moore who wrote a very famous business book years ago called Crossing the Chasm, who's written a book called Zone to Win. And, and one of the things he talks about 
uh, and I've had the benefit of, of spending a little time with Jeffrey, as, as did my management team recently. He talks about this incubation zone that companies have, which is you have your performance zone, all your bread and butter core products, hitting the numbers, doing all that. And then you have this incubation zone where you have new ideas that you try to you know, birth and incubate, and you try to get them into something called the transformational stage, which is where they actually become a meaningful part of the company. The problem with the incubation zone is too early in a company's life, it's held to performance level factors. Yeah. It should be treated like a venture startup and funded to specific milestones, many of which are not gonna be financial in nature. Um, and if you do it the right way, then you can actually create something that's transformational. If you don't, you know what a lot of companies do is they kill those projects early on because they're not hitting numbers that they could never fit anyway at that juncture. And then of course, the flip side is you nurture an idea for a long time, to your point, that is never going to get anywhere, and but you know you you've invested in it and you've you know you feel obligation to it. A lot of companies are like that, and a lot of venture capitalists these days, you know, they don't want to kill a project, but you know they don't kill a company that they invested in. But it's just not it's you know it's it's not the right team, it's not the right idea. Yes, yeah, that pivot. I mean, I've I've had this. I don't know how many times, and I'm sure you're there where you know you're a mentor for, you know, these guys that are coming up, these folks that are coming up with their new companies and ideas. And you tell them a couple times, my best advice to you right now is, is kill it. Yeah. Right. You're smart, but, yeah. but you need to kill this, you know, and, and the look on their face of you're telling me to cut my baby's head off. And I'm like, well, politely. Yes, I am. You really do. And I'm sorry. It's not a nice. It's, it's, it's not what you want to hear. And, and by the way, it, that's also a really important thing when you're judging uh, a business or opportunity early on um, is to try to understand how somebody receives feedback. Oh, that's a you good know. point. Are yeah. they, you know, are they open to the feedback and thinking about it? You know, it was so important to us when we started the company. We got, I mean, maybe in other interviews I've done, but we spent a hell of a long time trying to raise half a million dollars early on during the... Yeah, you your know, first two years was, I would call it a struggle, but it, it, it was, was, right? Yeah, it was a struggle for sure. I mean, it, spent, it took us almost a year to raise $500,000. Wow. And we'd walk in and people would be like, the number one, you know, we went in and we'd have 30 meetings, you know, over a three-day period, some crazy number of meetings, because we we're able to get meetings. We we're good at that, um, <laughs> if nothing else. And all of them are like, well, you know, is the market big enough? And, you know, we're like, of course it's big enough. I mean, come on, give me, a, it's a small business market. And then we would always afterwards, you know, be like talking about how dumb that potential investor was. And then after a while, we were like, Maybe they're just not dumb. They're just uninformed. And yes, we need to incorporate this into our talk going forward. So we address the pebble in the shoe that comes up all the time um, in the beginning of these conversations. So, yeah, because I mean, the reality is in the U.S., our economy is driven by small business right? everywhere I mean, in the world. And that's yeah, exactly. I was I was interviewing the um, I think she was the COO of Etsy, right? Mm -hmm. And she was telling me how something like 86% of those small businesses that are on their site are women globally, yeah. which I thought, oh, my God, really? Yeah. I mean, that blew me away. And then yeah. the stats like Etsy, a platform like Etsy was able to, to yeah. do, right? And we yeah. talk about eBay and others. Yeah. So, yeah, it's amazing that that's a market that's still, in my opinion, really ignored <laughs> it's it's hugely industry. ignored. I mean, you know, it's interesting. We, we have a, a new COO that joined us a few months ago, a great guy. And- um, you know, he and he put something in interesting perspective for me. He said, what we should do is 
And I was able to sort of, you know, take it one step further. And you need that. You need people who push ideas further, right? So he's like, we should make sure that we bring, you know, our goal should be to bring all the advantages of big business to small business. Then I sat back and thought about it. I said, why shouldn't the objective be to make it more advantageous to be a small business than a big business, right? Because you want to, you know, to the Etsy example or eBay example or, you know, Square or, you know, everybody, all these companies that are out there that are serving small businesses. Let's make it not only so unbelievably easy that now you're in a large business and you go, why the hell am I doing this? Why am I pulling my hair out every day? Let me go start a small business and I can focus on the things I'm best at. You know, I've given this same talk to, to mid-tier banks and smaller banks and credit unions. You know, to say, look, the, the problems a, a city or a, a Bank of America or a Wells have, you actually have some distinct advantages by being that much smaller, knowing your real customers. Yeah. You don't have 220 million cards on file. Yeah, That's actually a competitive like, advantage to some degree, is it yeah, not? Yeah. I, you know, and you have to figure out what those advantages are and, you know, play them to the maximum advantage. I, you know, again, this world of sort of, you know, big blocky kind of approach to business is great. And, and you know, uh, but I, I actually believe the promise of, of big data is hyper-personalization. I think we can, if we really work hard, we can get back to the, in many ways, the way it once was, where you walked into a store and they knew you so well that they could give you, you know, in our example, credit on the spot because, you know, they knew your father and your sister and your brother and they played, you know, football with your, you know, your cousins. You know, and so they knew you on this, you know, micro level. Well, you can do that with big data if you if you do it the right way. Well, you've actually said this about your customer base. You've said that your customers borrow from you on average 20 to 25 times over the course of four years. Holy shit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic stat. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, everybody else in the industry is like two. But now here's here's though I would still, you know, the, the big effort for cabbage this year and forever um, but we're only really talking about it this year is to go from what I call transactional to relational. To me, that's the big theme going forward in, for companies like Cabbage and other companies in fintech is how do you develop a relationship with your customer, even though they use us 20 times, 25 times over three to four years, do they really feel like they're in a relationship with us yet? Or do they feel like we're a tool, a transaction to them? And if you can make that leap from you know, I think there's like three ways you can be just single, almost single or two transactions, which is no relationship at all, to what we are, which is high transactions, to a relationship. And a relationship create, requires multiple products, almost daily interaction, and the right kind of interaction between between us and, and our small business owner, you know, that value that they see coming from that relationship. So one of my, you actually have another quote. I'm very quotable. Yeah, I'm very are. tweetable. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be very tweetable. Because <laughs> they are very short quotes, actually. Yeah. That says something, too. But I like this one because this is something we hear constantly. And it's one of my pet peeves. Okay. That every bank, every company is a technology company, right? Everyone says they're a tech technology oh, yeah. company now. You know, whatever. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, I, don't dis I don't disagree with the concept. I disagree with the execution. Yeah. Personally. So I love what you said. You said you don't disrupt banks by focusing on the advantages that banks have over you. Most online lenders would tell yourselves that they're a technology company. However, the biggest piece of technology that most of them promote is online application. There's nothing special <laughs> about online application other than it rolled out like in 1999. Yeah. I love that quote. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 true, and I am so frustrated because I've been so frustrated for so long because I felt like people didn't understand what technology was, and and then they went out, unfortunately, and they called themselves a technology company, and a bunch of analysts believed they were a technology company until they realized they didn't, and it clobbered, and then they took that dark cloud and they put it over everybody who actually legitimately was a technology company. Um, so. You know, it, it's it's about helping folks understand that you know you need to have some you know true innovation um, as part, and and that innovation actually has to be really tied to value, not just to the company, but incredible value to the customer, and creating dynamics where you have a relationship over time. So yes, there's a bunch of companies out there, you know, that have a bunch of people who are you know, in the back, you know, doing manual applications. You know, a lot of people are like, we're automated. Well, I go, well, to me, automation, it's very binary. It's either 100% automated, which neither the customer is required to interact with an individual at the company, nor is the company required to manually review the application in any way. That's automation. Like, real technology is not an online application. It just, it's, it's a real pet peeve of mine. Uh, and you know, and the problem is when you're not really a technology company, so a lot of these lending companies, you know, what they did over time was they basically said, they were trying to answer the wrong question. They said, um, can we fill the void left by banks? And when you try to answer that question, you try to fill a void. If you see a hole, you try to fill the hole. Right. And so you get as many customers as you possibly can. And then when you get all those customers, you've got to get cash. So they innovated on how they got cash. They didn't really innovate on the customer experience. And so my whole belief is, you know, that you've got to design for the customer and solve for everything else. And the problem is in this space, everybody solved, designed for the problem and never, never did for the customer. And, and so I, that's a, that's just a, you know, just part of my ethos. So this is like a, maybe the title is going to be like a unicorn MBA or masterclass because you have. <laughs> Please don't I, use unicorn. I hate that term. And so do I. Um, Narwhal, um, um, a big ass company. I was going to Big ass company. Big ass company. Big ass company. Mm. Eh, well, come up with a probably, word to work for your marketing Getting guy. back to that, to, to the, your, your view on the visual piece of this, you relative to me. Yeah. Yes. I got to find a, I got to find a good term for this, but you've, uh, here's the points that, that I, you've consistently said and come to, right? Customer centric. Oh, yeah. relationship, right? Transactional relationship, really focus on hiring, hire the right people that culturally have to be a good fit and be ready to, to reinvent or pivot constantly. Yep. I hate the word pivot. It should be a natural evolution where the next piece of the puzzle becomes clear. It's sort of the um, uh, famous, you know, Rodin used to say, that he didn't, you know, take a piece of stone and then create the statue that was in mind. The statue revealed itself, right. you know, during that process. And that is so incredibly important that the business reveals itself over time to you if you do it the right way. That's another really good quote. And I like the yeah, pivot. I get there you go. Yeah. So we'll, we'll business we'll, should reveal itself. Businesses should reveal itself. That's really good. All right. So just two last questions I want to ask you, because this is, by the way, this has been really good. Oh, thank you. So, Appreciate that. Yeah, it's the caffeine. Wait till the next interview you do. Oh, I know. I am it. so psyched. That's really the good yeah, one. Yeah, I'm doing back-to-back, -back, people. I'm, I'm, I don't know what's wrong with me. Worst piece of business advice you ever received? Only one. Oh, shit. Worst piece of business advice I ever received? Yeah. Actually, the, 
<laughs> can I? And this, it's gonna yes, sound you can say whatever really you want. Lame. It's going to sound really lame. Oh, one of the worst pieces of, of advice I ever got was early on, somebody told me, I didn't take it, but it was the worst piece of advice. He said, you know, hey, you know, you're trying to build, it took us a couple of years, as you noted in the beginning to get this started, not just for money, but we were building this complex system, you know, quotation marks around it, um, because we wanted to, you know, we weren't trying to prove that people needed cash, we, or small business needed cash, we wanted to prove there was a better way to do it. Um, but somebody was like, why don't you just put up an Excel spreadsheet and start lending money to customers? Um, you know, just to see if they're, you know, they'll borrow and you get paid back. And that's when I said, that's not what we're trying to solve for. The most important thing you can do when you start a business is figure out what you're trying to solve for and make damn sure that you don't solve for something different than that. You know, we're launching a new business line later this year and somebody wants to put out a Me Too product, right? To our customer base and many of our customers will accept it. But I'm not trying to prove whether I can put out that me Too solution. I'm trying to prove that the integration of our, our lending with this new solution is actually going to be a better outcome for the customer. That's what I'm trying to solve for. I'll wait an extra three, six months to launch to be able to have the features that allow me to prove that. Yeah, I was going to ask you for your best piece of advice and you just did it. There you go. Dang it. Dang it. The other thing is I, I was very sure I had all the answers um, a lot. Uh, and a really great example is I didn't think we needed to be able to build a sales team because we're an automated company. Why do you need salespeople? Uh, meanwhile, I saw everybody else go out there and execute on a sales team that worked. And I finally realized that, you know what we do? And remember how I said automation is the customer is not required to. That doesn't mean that every customer doesn't want to interact. Some customers don't want to interact with people. Right. So the mistake is I could confuse not wanting it to be manual with thinking that every customer, you know, needed it a certain way. And by the way, you know, you, you probably saw quotes from me about Bitcoin a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of trends that I completely, you know, I've embraced the underlying concept, but I haven't actually personally participated. And, you know, so I, I, I still realize that the unbelievable gap that exists between, you know, what's going to work and where my understanding is right now. Yeah, we can end on this quote. Rob Froline actually said this, blockchain is the shit. And I said that when? Um, a while ago, 2016. Yeah, really? You were the man. even earlier than that. Damn, that's well, not on, that long on. ago. That's pretty good. I don't know. Blockchain is the shit, except I didn't buy any uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Also, I might be able to be on some, uh, uh, some uh, you know, remote island at this point. Yeah, uh, of course, you can only get out like you know what your problem is. Day. No, you know what your problem is. You wouldn't go to the remote island no. because you are passionately curious. You're yep. never retiring. You know that, and I know that. Uh -huh. You're going to constantly be doing. Now nah, you'd be running some bed and breakfast somewhere that's automated. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, there's a great, great comedian, Mitch Hedberg, and he goes, I love Mitch I, he goes. You know what I want to do? I want to open a bunch of um, lunch chair dinner, like lunch chair dinners, because, you know, the be right next to all the bed and breakfasts. This show is crafted for you by the folks at 11FS. We're building banks for the future. Find out more at 11FS.com. If we hooked you with this episode, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Every star helps. Today's episode was edited by Michael Bailey and produced by Laura Watkins, Ollie Judge, and myself. I'm Sam Mall, and this has been Connection Interrupted. Thanks for listening. <laughs>